The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I want to take a moment and I want you to think about the happiest person that you have ever known. Who would that be? Just take a few seconds to think about it. Does everyone have someone in mind? Now, I want you to think about how this person made you feel when you were around them. I'm guessing that you enjoyed being around this person. I'll bet they had so much happiness that they were able to extend their happiness over to you. In other words, their joy became your joy. You know, when I was growing up, I remember seeing this picture of Jesus, and it used to hang on my cousin's bedroom wall. And I remember being drawn to it because it was so unlike any picture of Jesus that I'd ever seen. You know, we, we had lots of uh, Jesus pictures growing up in my house, uh, but the images that we had were, they were all pretty serious, right? Uh, they were either, you know, depicting Jesus on the cross, praying alone, teaching the crowds, doing ministry, but this picture will always kind of be etched into my mind. I don't know why, maybe it was because I was a troubled kid growing up, but I still love this picture today because I think it brings to light something about Jesus that we rarely reflect upon, and that is his joy. And I'm not sure who came to mind when I asked you about the happiest person you've ever known, but my answer would be Jesus. By the way, if anyone asks you a question in church, the answer is almost always Jesus, okay? (laughs) Except, like, where's the bathroom? That's not going to be Jesus, but it's almost always Jesus. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ was the happiest person that has ever walked on the face of this earth. I don't think anyone else even comes close. No one had more joy than him. And it's not just because he knew how to have a good time. He did. I mean, who turns water into wine? He knows how to have a good time. (laughs) It wasn't because children were naturally drawn to him, and they were. Do you ever see children drawn to angry or sad people? No. They go to the happy people. They have a sixth sense about it. And it wasn't even because... Jesus could stay unbelievably positive even in the midst of his darkest moments. I believe he was the happiest person on earth because he could extend his joy to everyone in the world and you could still never exhaust his supply. And I think the greatest sign that you have an overabundance of something in your life is not just that you have a lot of it, but when you have so much that you have to give it away freely. You know, think about money, for example. You know, you have different degrees of wealth. There are some who have enough money to to buy a beautiful home, nice cars, and then there are some who are just ridiculously wealthy. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they come to mind, who have so much money, they have far more than they could possibly spend for themselves. And what do you see them do? They give their money away. 
through their foundations, uh, through donations, because their supply is virtually endless. They can give it away freely. And Jesus said these words to his disciples in John chapter 15, 11. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You know, if you are pursuing happiness, if you want more joy in your life, then this verse should give you great hope. Because here we find both an invitation and an instruction to God's eternal joy. Notice he says, my joy may be in you. It's not just any joy. It's an endless joy because it comes from Christ. Jesus is offering us his joy out of the overflow of his own. And so I don't think there's any better person to look at to as we seek more joy in our lives than Jesus Christ. You know, last Sunday, we opened this new sermon series, Joy in the Journey, and we began by defining what joy is not by examining the words and the life of Paul. And despite all the hardships that he faced, we witnessed in Paul a joy that was not based upon how he felt or his circumstances, but it was unchanging because it was grounded upon Christ himself. The joy of the Lord was his strength. And so we discover that true joy is not found in a feeling, right? It's not something that comes from inside of yourself. Or a circumstance, something that comes from outside of yourself. Or even a person or a place or a thing. True joy can only be found in God. We were created with a desire to pursue happiness because God is drawing us to a joy that can only be found in him. We were created for this very purpose, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So now that we've laid the groundwork of whom we discover this joy, today we'll be looking into how. How do we discover the joy of the Lord? And thankfully God tells us how in his word. He, does not, he doesn't want this to be a mystery. Again, Jesus says, these things, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You curious about what these things are? What did Jesus say that would bring us his life-giving, soul-fulfilling joy? Before I read through the text from John 15, um, I want to provide some color on what's happening here because this is the last place you would think to find these words on joy. Jesus has been ministering for over three years now and at this point the religious leaders are hot on his trail. They for years have been trying to discredit him. Now they're just seeking to destroy him and they have found an opening and it's through one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. And so we, now we find ourselves in the upper room. It's the feast of Passover, and Jesus is with his closest disciples. And he's talking about his coming death. And the mood is confusing, and it's somber, and something is not right. Everyone in the room knows it. And yet, it's in this very context that Jesus shares these words 
on joy. You know, death, I think, has a way of separating the important from the unimportant. If you've ever encountered someone with a terminal illness or someone that's lying on their deathbed, um, you know, you, you don't waste time talking about superfluous things, right? You cut right to the chase and you address the things that are of the highest importance. You express your love for one another. You clear up any misunderstandings. You reconcile any past wrongs. You say everything you need to say because you don't want to lose your chance to say it. So in that moment, what does Jesus say to his loved ones? John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. You know, these are, in in essence, Jesus' last words to his most beloved. And I find it remarkable that even in the midst of everything that is in front of him, the horrors of the cross and the crucifixion, even then, Jesus is more concerned about those he loves than himself. He wants to impart words that will bring them comfort and hope and joy. And this text opens with the last of the seven I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John that Jesus states. I am the vine. I am the vine. And this last metaphor that Jesus chooses would have rung loudly in the ears of his Jewish disciples because the imagery of vines and vineyards was one that was used by God repeatedly in the Old Testament. The vine was a symbol of the nation of Israel. And God had called Israel, this nation, to be a light to all nations, to shine his love, his heart, to shine his holiness, and through that light to draw the world to himself. And Israel had largely failed. 
And in the book of Isaiah, we find in chapter 5 the song of the vineyard in which God is portrayed as the great gardener who lovingly digs out and cares for his vineyard, and yet all that is yielded is sour and bitter grapes. And we find this again in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 21, when God says to Israel, I have planted you as a fruitful vine. Entirely true. How have you become a wild vine? Turn to bitterness. And so here in the upper room, Jesus takes this image and he applies it to himself by declaring, I, I am the true vine. And again, he declares God the Father as the great gardener, the vine dresser. And in doing so, he's telling his disciples that where Israel has failed, he would not. If they simply abide in him they too would yield a great harvest of fruit in their lives unlike any other. The fruit that God desires for them. And this would bring them fullness of joy. All that is required is one thing, that we abide in Him. And this is the secret, I think, to joy and the search for happiness. It begins and it ends with Jesus Christ. Joy is found in abiding in Christ. You know, the word abide shows up 11 times in the 11 verses that we read. And when it first appears in verse 4, it is in the form of an imperative. It's a command. God wants to make it very clear what our responsibility is in all of this. What we are called to. How we discover his joy. And that is to simply abide. But what does that word mean, right? Abide. Does anybody ever use this word like in your daily conversations? (laughs) Do you go to the grocery store with your kids and say, like, hey, I don't want you running around getting lost, so make sure you abide in me, okay? No. My kids would run far away from me if I talked to them like that. You know, sometimes I have a thought come to me when I'm driving, and because my hands are tied, I'll record it on my phone using my voice, and yesterday... You know, I had this happen, and so I, used the, I was using the word abiding, and I was, you know, speaking it to my phone, and Siri typed out the word abiting, like biting. And then I, when I asked Siri, what is abiding, she said, a, com- a common behavior which involves the opening and closing of the jaw found in many animals. <laughs> You're not helping me, Siri. <laughs> it's a unique word. Even Siri doesn't know it. It's rarely used. But it's an important one because we're told this is what leads us to his joy. And so let's, let's unpack this word a bit together. You know, in the original Greek, this word is meno, which means to remain, to dwell, to live in. And it, it's, it's used in many different contexts, both literally and figuratively, often seen as the word remain. Like an actual place that you choose to stay, like I remained in the city or an unchanged condition or state, such as, I remain unmarried, or sinners who remain in darkness. But in the context of personal relationships, and in the Gospel of John here, this word has great depth of meaning. It means a person who stands united with another, 
someone who is in such intimate union that they're intertwined in heart, mind, and soul. Forgive me, man in the room, but in the words of Anne of Green Gables, this is described as two people who are kindred spirits. (laughs) I had three sisters. I apologize. But this is where you find true joy, and this is what God calls us to, to enter into that kind of intimate union with Christ, where two become one. And this is the kind of oneness and intimate union that Jesus shared with God the Father. And this is why Jesus continually refers to the Father over and over again in this passage. The Father is whom he obeys. The Father is whom he loves. The Father is who he seeks to glorify. And that same love, that same union, that same intimacy that he shared with God the Father, he desires to share with you and with me. If we just abide in him. You know, I think one of the ways to describe the intimate union that abiding pictures is found in the word dependence. Abiding requires utter dependence. And I'm not talking about an unhealthy kind of codependency where you look to another person to to meet a need that, that, you know, they cannot possibly fill. I'm talking about a healthy kind of dependence that humbly recognizes that God is the only one who can fulfill all your needs. You don't need a green thumb to know that a branch utterly depends upon a tree to live. And Jesus makes it clear that in abiding in him, we as the branches are to depend completely on him as the vine for our life, for our sustenance, for our power. Without it, the branch is as good as dead. Without the branch, it could do nothing. I mentioned last week that Kim and I went to Maui for our 10-year anniversary, and while even Maui cannot promise eternal joy, um, the highlight of the week was going uh, on the hike of the Waihee Ridge Trail. Uh, This is a four-mile hike up to the top, and when you get there, you're rewarded with these incredible views of the Pacific Ocean. And when we were hiking this trail, we came across this strange-looking tree, and it forced me to stop and take a closer look. Uh, this large tree had fallen over. It was completely uprooted. And it looked like it had bl- been blown over by you know, a storm or some heavy winds because it was probably either already dying or had a weak root system. It really didn't have much roots there, as you can see. But this tree had fallen over, but it had fallen over perfectly upon another tree next to it, which was of the same kind. And it looked like it happened years ago because when we got closer, we noticed that this tree had fallen over, had completely fused itself onto this other living tree. I've never seen anything like it. And when you looked at the top of this fallen tree, it still had all of its leaves. It looked just like the healthy tree, except its roots were totally exposed. This dead tree relied 100% upon the healthy tree for life, which was now sharing all of its own water, minerals, and nutrients with the fallen tree. And there was, there was only one way this dead tree could have lived. When it united itself with the life of the tree next to it. 
But for this to happen, the dead tree could not die standing up. It had to fall upon, and not just fall, but press itself into the life-giving tree. This was the only way they could share the same life together. And I believe this is the kind of union that God calls us to in Christ. An utter dependency in which Christ becomes the source of our life. But first, we must die to ourselves. You know, that tree became somewhat prophetic for me. Uh, I think God knew that I needed to see that tree because um, I was just about to enter into this season of my life which storms and winds were going to expose just how shallow my roots were and completely uproot me and undo my life. You know, about six months after we saw that tree, my wife was diagnosed with cancer and our lives were flipped upside down. I took eight months off of work and when she came back into remission, you would think like it would be a joyful time in my life. But it wasn't. You know, I tried to go back to work and I couldn't. And I spiraled into this massive depression. So bad that literally I could not get out of bed. And I was on disability for nearly half a year. And I'd last lost all sense of meaning and purpose in my life. And I couldn't even find joy in eating. I lost about 30 pounds in less than a month. And I had come to the end of myself. I had fallen over as if dead. But by the grace of God, in my falling, he caught me. And in my dying, I was forced to depend on him and press into him and let his life become my own. You know, I've been a Christian for over 30 years now, but I feel like it's just in the last five years that I'm just beginning to understand what it means to abide in Christ. I'm going to share more about this dark season in my life later when I speak on the enemies of joy in the weeks to come. But I share this now because I want you to know that although depending on God requires dying to self, it is a necessary part of abiding And in the end, this is where you find his life and find his love. This is where you discover his joy. Abiding requires utter dependence. And I think the second thing that abiding calls us to is surrender. Abiding requires total surrender. If you want to experience the joy of the Lord in your life, then you must not only depend on him fully, you must surrender yourself to him completely, to his entire will, and to all of his ways. You know, I've uh, planted one fruit tree in my entire life, and it was a blueberry bush that I purchased three years ago. I took a picture of this bush yesterday, and as you can see, it's really struggling. I fertilized it. Blueberries need lots of acid. I put acid into the soil. I did everything I thought I needed to do, and this guy has yielded me a total of five blueberries. (laughs) It's enough for like half a muffin. And this year, there was zero harvest. I hope my kids don't listen to this. I ate all the five blueberries, by the way, (laughs) in one standing. 
So I did some research this week on a website called modernfarmer.com on how to produce more and better fruit from fruit trees because obviously I have a lot to learn. And I found it to be very educational. You know, apparently there are three basic steps to pruning a fruit tree. The first step is cleanup. You start by pruning any wood that's unfruitful because it's either dead, damaged, or diseased. That's the three Ds of pruning. These branches work against growing anything that's uh, fruitful It's because these dead branches are useless and they really only create risk of harming the healthy branches, especially if they're diseased. And notice that the very first step that Jesus says God the Father does as the vine dresser, when it says in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He takes it away. That's step one, clean up. Step two is thin out, thin out. Here you're going to remove any branches growing downward, and then you step back and you prune out any branches that look like they may cross paths with any other branches that are too close. You want evenly spaced branches, at least 6 to 12 inches of air space in between every branch so that you can maximize the amount of light and air to flow through all the branches. I found that so interesting. The more light, the more air that flows through the branches, the more fruit that it yields. Step three is head back. This doesn't seem like much, but this is important too. This is where you give the tree a final haircut. The shorter and thicker the tree, the better. This final step activates the growth hormones within the tree and also gives it proper strength and structure to support the weight of a larger fruit yield. And Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruits. And in all this research, I realize that the biggest mistake that most people make and I made, is that they don't prune at all, or they don't prune early enough, or they don't prune enough. And the first year especially is especially key because once the many branches form, most of the energy that the tree generates goes into building the wood pulp instead of producing fruit in the years to follow. And so abiding means that you recognize, just like this pruning process, that God is doing a work in your life and surrendering to that work by faith. And at times it may be intensely painful, but abiding means that by faith you trust that he has a greater purpose in mind, that he knows what he is doing. He has not forgotten you. He's pruning you so that you might bear more fruit to your joy, as you depend on him and surrender to his will. This might mean surrendering your marriage and committing to stay in a very difficult one, even though you're really struggling to make it work. This might mean surrendering your hurt and choosing to forgive someone who has wounded you profoundly. This might mean surrendering your children and trusting their future to God and not to your own best laid plans. This might mean surrendering your finances and trusting that he will provide 
We all have something that we need to surrender, and we don't want to because we're afraid. It might deny us our happiness, but God says, surrender it, and I will give you my joy. Abiding requires a total surrender. Lastly, abiding requires intimate oneness. If we want to experience his joy, we must commit ourselves to growing an intimate oneness with him. In verse 7, Jesus says something that has always kind of confounded me. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Is that not motivation enough to abide in Christ? It's not, you know, I'm name and claim this verse. This is not a golden ticket to get anything you want, right? Jesus is not preaching a prosperity gospel here. But what he's saying is that when you enter into the kind of intimate union that he is calling us to, then his prayers become your prayers. And his prayers never fail. And this is also why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Why? Because as you grow in oneness with Christ, by abiding in him, his will becomes your will. And his will is to obey the will of the Father, to obey the commands. And these commands are no longer burdensome or a duty. They become a delight. Oneness means that his life becomes your life. His desires become your desires. His heart, your heart. His passions, your passion. His prayers, your prayers. His will becomes your will. And guess what? His joy now becomes your joy. Have you died so completely to yourself that you have become uprooted, fallen over upon the life of Jesus Christ, so that his life has become your own? Have you pressed into him so fully that you are utterly dependent upon him? Have you surrendered yourself to his will, to his pruning in your life? Have you committed yourself to an intimate oneness with him that knits your heart, your mind, and your soul together? If so, then Jesus is your vine, and you are his branch. If so, then you are abiding in him. If so, then his joy is in you, and your joy will be made full. You know, the danger of preaching a message like this is that many of us can drive home today with every intention of abiding in Christ this week and yet have no real clue as to how we should apply a message like this into our lives on a practical level, right? What does it mean to abide in my day-to-day life, here and now? You know, I think the easiest way to think about this is when you frame it alongside the only other relationship I know of in which God says that two become one. And that is the relationship between a husband and wife. Because this too is a sacred union designed by God, blessed by God, for the glory of God. 
And the light suddenly clicked for me when I thought about it in this way, because to be honest, marriage has been very difficult um, for me these, these past two years, especially since becoming a pastor. Um, you know, I realized I was often coming home distracted, always checking my phone for texts and emails. Sometimes I would go an entire week without really sitting down and spending time connecting with my wife, Kim, because late-night meetings or I just wanted to decompress when I did get home. And when we did have an opportunity to just sit down and really talk, she could tell you know, that my mind would wander onto other people or concerns about the church or what I needed to get done. And she would often ask me, like, if I could just be home when I'm at home. And to my shame, this often fell on deaf ears. And I think what made this even more difficult was that in the midst of all this, I was very willing to sit down and make time for others and carefully listen to people share what's on their hearts and pray for others and, you know, just be this generally awesome, godly pastor that you all know and love. (laughs) Tongue-in-cheek. And yet I hardly gave her that kind of priority or showed that same level of concern with our relationship since I entered into ministry even though she's my wife. And to her credit, she's been very patient with me. And the Lord just began to convict me in recent months just about what kind of priority I've placed on my relationship with my wife since I've become a pastor. And more recently, I've been convicted to just carve out time for her more regularly and just be fully present when I'm with her. To just drop the phone to give her my full attention, and not to allow myself to get distracted from the things that could take away from us. You know, to try to find intentional and focused times where we can do something together that we enjoy or talk over things that really matter. And, you know, I haven't been perfect, but this is a process for me, and I'm I'm on that road. And by the grace of God, um, I'm changing. Oh, this past week I went to a yoga class with my wife (laughs) for the first time in a long time, um, and it reminded me that this is what love does, (laughs) yoga. Let me explain. This is how love changes you. I didn't start out in my marriage liking yoga, okay? (laughs) I've grown to love yoga, and I've come to realize there are a few things more relaxing in life than laying on your back and doing the happy baby pose. It's really relaxing. You should try it. But before I met Kim, I I hated romantic films, but now Pride and Prejudice is like near the top of my list, favorite movies. And the other day we watched the new Anne of Green Gables series on Netflix together because I suggested it. I don't know what's happening to me. (laughs) I'm a horrible dancer but I actually enjoy waltz and swing dancing because she got me into it. And I realized over time, I've grown to love the things that she loves and find joy in the things that bring her joy because slowly over the course of 16 years of marriage, we are becoming one. She still falls asleep before the end of the first quarter when we watch football together. So we still have some work to do. But we're still, we are becoming one. And this growing oneness has has made us more like each other. 
we now enjoy much of the same things. And she has made me a better person. And it has increased my joy because it has expanded the list of things that I enjoy. And I had lost sight of that. And I need to come back to that. And as I said, the marriage relationship is a great illustration of the union that God desires with us. Because I believe God created and designed the marriage relationship for that very purpose, to be a picture of his desired relationship with us. It's an abiding one, intertwined by mind, body, and spirit, an intimate union in which two become one. And as much as, as I've had to repent for neglecting my wife and our marriage, I feel that I've had to spend more time repenting about the ways that I've neglected my Lord. It's so easy to, to let the intense Bible study of preparing a sermon take the place of a consistent devotional life. I used to have an hour metro train ride from Huntley to the city when I worked prior to coming into ministry, and I would spend that hour just reading and praying on the train. And to my shame, I confess, I struggled to spend that same kind of time with the Lord in the morning as a pastor. And yet I feel the Lord gently calling me the same way that my wife did to a consistent, intentional, undistracted time with him. A time in which I can demonstrate my utter dependence on him where I can surrender my time and myself to him and build the intimate oneness that he desires for me and for my joy. Now when I get up in the morning, I I really try not to grab my phone and check social media or read the news as my first act of the day because I already know it, it sets me off on the wrong track where I can get so easily distracted from the Lord. And I'm trying to spend time with the Lord so that I can hear from him through his word and he can hear me through my prayers and we can find the oneness that he desires and he's called me to. Maybe you find yourself in that same place. Maybe you're having difficulty finding joy because you have sought it apart from the Lord. I believe Jesus is gently calling you to abide in him. To abide by depending on him daily. Surrendering to him whatever it is that you are holding on to. Abide by committing yourself to an intimate oneness so that his joy can now become your own. This is his great desire for you. Let's pray together.